0: Friends, it's so good to be back here with you. It's been a few months since I was last here at New Hope, and uh, it's just wonderful to, um, in light of some of the heavy things that Clayton right now is going through, just last minute things that we had to uh, readjust our our schedule for, uh, it's been amazing just to be able to see how the Lord is working all of this together uh, to yet still uh, be able to sing his praise together this morning with you, even at such a late notice. So, this morning, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. And uh, yes, you heard that correctly, we'll be in Revelation this morning. (laughs) I know for uh, some of you, you may be a little excited about this at first, um, because the idea of going through something that's so marvelous and mysterious actually excites you. And I see the look on some of your faces already. For some of you, this is very daunting, admittedly, to think of hearing a whole sermon on Revelation. An unfamiliar passage for a lot of us. I know for many of you, you have probably been inundated with all kinds of charts and timelines and competing philosophies and eschatologies, things regarding the last days, and we're probably left utterly confused as to what the entire message of Revelation is actually all about. Well, thankfully, amidst the marvel and the mystery, the message of Revelation is actually quite simple. is this, that our God will triumph. So you and I are in need of this message of God's triumph over all things, especially now more than ever. We live in a shifting culture, (laughs) speaking of shifting things, (laughs) a shifting culture, though, that is rapidly declining into oblivion all around us, and we are in utter need of a true and a lasting and abiding hope. See, this message of divine triumph over sin and all of its entanglements is so needed and it's so timely for us even right now, is it not? Even especially right now, as is a little hard to hear, I imagine. <laughs> but see, this message is timely because it meets us in every season of life with the promise of the life that is yet to come, a life that is eternal in which sin and destruction will be no more when we will know fully the righteous rule of our good and our gracious king over not just us, his people, but over all things that he has placed under his dominion and his power. And so this book of Revelation tells us that this consummation of his righteous rule at the last will erupt in endless praise. Ours will at the last be The victors cry, and the bride of Christ will soon stand clothed in white, free from all of her shame and impurities. And so our passage this morning in Revelation 4 prepares us for this final day, does it not? See, here in chapter 4, we will behold what is just the beginning of what is the most stunning, awe-inducing, and captivating worship service found throughout all of Scripture This worship service begins here in chapter 4, and it will continue all the way to the end of chapter 5. But for the sake of time, we'll just be looking at chapter 4 this morning together. At first, a little bit of context will probably help us, though. See, the book of Revelation is written in what is known as apocalyptic literature. This means that it reveals God's character and his actions to us through the use of what is figurative, not necessarily literal, language. We also see visions and revelations that showcase to us. There we go. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. (laughs) Hero right there, seriously. (laughs) Thank you for saving the day. Um, But this means to us, though, that we see God's uh, justice and his holiness and even his judgment against sin on one hand, against sin in all of its fullness, but also his sovereign mercy simultaneously toward his blood-bought Beloved people. So we see both judgment and grace here in Revelation. But Revelation also serves us as the fellow servants of Jesus to whom John, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, wrote. See, at its core, as we learn from Revelation 1, verse 3, Revelation is written as truly, not this confusing word, ultimately, but rather a word of blessing. A word of blessing in the midst of the strife that we face here in this present darkness and so john the servant of jesus received the authoritative instruction from jesus christ himself beginning in revelation 1 and following to both write down whatever he saw and then send that message out to all the local churches there throughout asia minor and even beyond And so the beauty of Revelation is that it wasn't just specific only to that people and time and place. It continues, the message continues to advance as being inspired by God to fill our minds with the things of Christ. And it speaks to us just as loudly today as it did to those in the first century AD. And catch this, our passage speaks to us ultimately as a kind and a gracious word From the heart of our living savior to our own open and listening ears so friends knowing this let's now approach the word of god with humility and reverence recognizing that these are god's holy words given to us in love i invite you to read with me revelation 4 beginning in verse 1 which say this after this i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Friends, with this powerful vision in mind, it's only appropriate that we come now in prayer before the throne of our God and pray together. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you so much for this Day that you have made in which you have called us to worship and to read from what is a beautiful passage. One that is full of, again, marvel and mystery, and yet whose message is so clear to us that you indeed reign in all splendor and sovereignty over us. God, we thank you that in the midst of the changes, even the things that we're experiencing as a church plant in a changing season together, We recognize that there are things all around us that can so easily captivate our attention, that can cause us to be distracted. Father, we even think already in this worship service of just recognizing the fan blowing and things of that nature where we we don't expect these things to happen, but we recognize that none of it is outside of your control. And so, Lord, we thank you that this time is dedicated not to us, even for us as a church. It is truly for your glory and your honor and your reverence before your name. And so, Lord, would you cause our hearts to be in utter and complete submission before you as we listen carefully to your word, read but also now preached, so that the word of Christ would go forth and conquer, as we just sang, every rebel power within our own hearts. Lord Jesus, we are a needy people, as we also sing about, of people who need to be reminded of your holiness and your grandeur and your majesty and so Lord we offer this time to you as a sacrifice of Thanksgiving and we ask O oh Lord that as your word is preached that it would go forth and not one word will return in void but that we would receive it with thanksgiving and humble and meek hearts knowing that you in love desire to give it to us and refresh us by your grace so we, O Lord, we, oh Lord, pray for your blessing upon this time, as your word is now preached. Let I myself get out of the way as merely an instrument and a vessel of your mercy, and let your word by your Holy Spirit go forth with power and might, so that we might hear it and submit to it and find our true and deepest satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, Revelation 4 not only commands our total and whole worship, it actually exhorts us in how we are to worship this sovereign, glorious King of whom we just read. See, we are invited to do two things in response to this passage. Two things. First, to worship our King with awe. And yet, second to worship our King with absolute honor, we'll see this aspect of awe, especially in the first half of our passage, and this idea of worshiping our King with honor in the second half of our passage. Now, the Anglican scholar Richard Bachum, who wrote this book called *The Theology of Revelation*, very helpful book for those who want to dive further into it, has wisely stated before that this apocalypsis, or revelation before us, is thoroughly Trinitarian. In it, we see the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all alike, directly referenced from beginning to end. And in fact, as we've just read, we've already seen Jesus specifically on display here in the first verse. We see the Holy Spirit in verse 2 and elsewhere. And we see God the Father on the throne in verses 2 and following. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in their divine beauty and majesty before us. And so this passage then paints a picture for us of the unity and the relationship between all three persons of the triune God. In the words of our Westminster Confession of Faith, we know that the members of the Trinity are of one substance, one power, and eternity. The father is of none neither begotten nor proceeding the son is eternally begotten of the father and the holy spirit eternally proceeds from both the father and the son furthermore our triune god as our confession goes on to say has all life glory goodness blessedness in and of himself he is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and even upon them. This, then, is the backdrop, theologically speaking, for what we have beheld in our own passage, the triune God in all of his majesty. See, from the start of Revelation 1 all the way to our own passage here in chapter 4, we are made to behold the glory and the power of the triune God expressed to each one of us who have ears to hear this same truth. Amidst all of the figurative language and the repetition of numbers and themes and archetypes, we see yet one king who is seated on the throne. One king encircled by the whole host of heaven and the sum of earth's representatives together. Friends, this triune majesty is the king of heaven whom we worship every Sunday. But if we're honest with ourselves, our senses toward the things of God become so easily dulled, do they not? Our own spiritual taste buds become so accustomed to the things of this earth. Even this morning, confessing it to you openly before you, I've been distracted myself even as I've been preparing for worship. We've had so many things going on. And our worship in these times becomes divided and diluted. We are a broken and very divided people in our own hearts. Now, I don't doubt that each one of us long here at New Hope to be faithful worshipers of God, but as we've already experienced, our worship becomes so distracted and disjointed at a moment's notice. See, so often the focus of our minds and the cares of our own hearts become riddled with fears and concerns. Will the air kick in or not? (laughs) Will the front door, will there be noise out there or not? We feel the stressors of work, of planning, of relationships, and trying to hold these things together on a daily basis. And as a result, our hearts are so easily made captive to these lesser earthly things and led astray by these things at the expense of true God-fearing, God-honoring worship. So friends, you and I need a transformed reorientation of our hearts and our minds at such times. And guess what? This reorientation of our hearts and our minds cannot be produced in our own selves, can it? It cannot come from within us. We cannot have our own ears and eyes be opened. We cannot do it ourselves. We need the lampstands of our own hearts to be set aflame by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And nothing apart from awe-filled, scripture-directed worship will accomplish this for our own good and God's glory. As such, I am convinced that this scene in Revelation chapter 4 is purposed to break through the present struggles, strivings, and sufferings of our own lives as Christians. This scene before us in Revelation 4 is a scene of unbridled, uninhibited, uncontainable worship unto the King of all kings. It interrupts us in the midst of our own spiritual labors with the life-giving message of God's holy salvation from on high. It is the very voice of Jesus, after all, in Revelations chapter 1 through 3, when he wrote to the churches, the seven churches there in that day, the same voice of Jesus who invites us here at New Hope to be withdrawn from our normal routines and be drawn into this heavenly worship scene to stand before him in awe. See, Jesus is the one who invites us into this worship service. Jesus is the one who does this, and he does it, curiously enough, as we see in our text in verse 1, through the means of a figurative door, a door that ushers our mind's eye to behold the Father of lights, the Spirit of God. And even he, Jesus himself, the Lamb, in chapter 5, encompassed all around by pure, unbridled worship. Revelation 4, verse 1 tells us this specifically. After this, I, meaning John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. See, here we read of a door for gospel nourishment, which is opened by Jesus himself, the door of the sheepfold himself. And so Jesus invites us into the most spectacular worship service, one in which we see the sovereignty and the holiness of God on full display. Now, we know that this section in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 together as one unit is indeed a worship service, properly speaking, because it follows the exact liturgy as set forth in Scripture previously, especially in the Old Testament, Nehemiah and elsewhere. To beginning in verse 1, we see in essence what is truly a call to worship by Jesus himself. We see then the gathering of God's creation from around the four figurative corners of the earth from verses 4 through 8. We see then a retelling of creation and redemption from chapters 4 to 5, respectively. We see various psalms and hymns and spiritual songs being sung, all echoing God's salvation from the Old Covenant to the New We then see in chapter 5 a little later on, in Revelation 5.13, a doxology, utter praise to God. And finally, in verse 14, the last verse of this worship service, we hear the shout of a final, Amen, Amen. See, when we understand the whole of Revelation 4 through 5 as being one giant, Heaven-sized worship service unto our one holy triune God. All of the colorful brilliancy, the symmetry amongst the worshipers that we were reading about, the images of the calmed crystal sea, and the spirits, and the thrones, and the lesser crowns, and the like, they all begin to find their greater end. See, through the vehicle of this genre, apocalyptic literature, figurative revelatory literature, This heavenly vision conveys to us actual, real, specific truths about our God that transcend our own ability to rationalize the same. We see, implicitly speaking, truths such as these, that God alone has authority over all lesser thrones, signified by those 24 thrones. In God's presence, we all must bow in humble adoration, for he is worthy. We see that nothing unclean and impure can come before him, for even the sea is still before him, and no one else can claim dominion and honor, for he controls and rules over it all. Friends, these truths about God's sovereignty and his power and so many more things begin to rush like a mighty river to our own attention in verse 2 and following See, God himself is the one who is seated on the throne with the appearance of what it says, Jasper and Carnelian. Around his throne is a a rainbow in effect with the appearance of an emerald, the most sublime thing you can even imagine when it comes to light. And here we see the full spectrum of that same light, all of the colors ever invented by God, bursting forth from the throne and encircling all of the heavenly host captivating them. And beyond the brilliancy of refracted light off of that pristine sea, the appearance of the exalted one himself is described for us through vivid colors found in precious earthy stones. And so we have before us pictures of both heaven and earth, strength and beauty, royalty and purity, all perfectly here designed to command our full attention Awe. This king seated upon the throne rules over them all. And it's here in verse 4 that we begin to see the exercise of his divine sovereignty over all things take shape. Verse 4 tells us this around the throne were 24 elders. And seated on the thrones were 24 uh, elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. What a beautiful picture. Now, see, scholars have long debated about the identity of these 24 elders. You know, who are they, right? We often get trapped in the weeds of trying to interpret Revelation. (laughs) Many scholars believe that they are indicative of the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, right? And the 12 apostles together making 24. Others believe that they are angelic beings, or even maybe just the starry hosts, right? Still others believe that they represent the 24 books of the Hebrew Old Testament, known as the Tanakh. Still others, like myself, believe that the truth probably lies as a mixture between all of those. (laughs) That these 24 elders are indeed angelic beings who represent both the fullness of the Old and New Testament saints alike in the 12 and 12 together. But regardless of how we individually interpret this picture, you know, who these elders are, what is most clearly presented to us is their significance. See, what we are made to behold is in effect an encirclement around the throne, complete with the array of lesser thrones and signs of purity designated by their white garments and their golden crowns upon their heads. And in the center, the magnitude of flashing lightning, loud rumblings, and cracks of thunder, complete with the Holy Spirit's presence, represented by those seven burning torches of fire, all of this draws us to not behold the outer ring itself, the people and the items around, but rather the one who is at the center. Here sits our holy God with absolute dominion, and control over it all. But catch this. In the midst of this most holy, all-consuming, fiery image, our God who dwells in unapproachable light makes his reign known to us, broken and sinful people through his word. And he makes it known to us, his reign, not as a reign of terror or fright, as we read of in Hebrews 12, but rather as a reign of peace. How do we know that this is a reign of peace? Because that sea that is described before him, is it crashing? Are there waves all about? No, it's completely still. It's made as fine glass. The sea dares not move an inch before this holy God. The sea that is throughout the rest of scripture, indicative of chaos and death and destruction and even judgment against God's enemies. As Israel passed through the Red Sea, the sea consumed the Egyptians after them. As Noah got into the boat, the sea consumed those who were unbelievers, right? It's always seen as death, destruction, judgment. But here, that same sea in the picture of the sea is as smooth It reminds me of the scene in the Gospel accounts when Jesus stepped upon the Sea of Galilee and calmed it with one word in the Gospel accounts. See, the sea before our God cannot rage in the slightest against him. Our Lord, who is the King Eternal, has the power then to utterly quell every degree of rebellion against him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe this to be true? That your God has the power to put to rest your own rebelliousness against him, let alone the rebelliousness of others around you. In your day-to-day lives, when you are faced with antagonism, and when you feel the weight of your own sin even within you, do you hear the calming yet powerful voice of Jesus telling you the same word that he told Peter upon the waters? It is I, as I, do not be afraid. Rightly so, then, you and I must worship our God with wonder-filled awe, especially if we desire to orient the whole of our lives toward God and, by example, lead others in doing the same with our families and our friends alike and those whom we disciple. But we are also invited to worship the same God with not just awe, but thank-filled honor in our response to his personal kindness. And we'll see this in the last half of Revelation 4. See, beginning halfway through verse six, we see a whole set of repetitions. Namely, the phrase in verse six beginning here, around the throne is used again and again as it has been. I'm convinced that this repetition is not arbitrary. It's poetic, but it has meaning, does it not? See, in the Greek, this word, For encirclement or around is the Greek word kuklo, where we get the word circle from in English. And this idea of kuklo or encirclement illustrates for us a ring in effect of worshipers and items of worship for our own imaginations to picture. See on each side of the throne from front to back and side to side. Each of these sides, these four sides, if you will, is met with a cherubim and a seraphim-like creature. John describes these as appearing like a lion, like an ox, like a man, and like an eagle still in flight. Each of these four living beings has six wings, making up 24 wings in total, right? So you have these repetition of numbers even right here. And each of these four living beings give references to Old Testament pictures. Here we see a subtle reference to the cherubim that sat atop the Ark of the Covenant that was nestled in the heart of God's temple and tabernacle alike. It's also a direct reference to Isaiah's vision of the seraphim that had six wings that approached him in Isaiah 6. Not a scary image at all, right? (laughs) But these living beings, these four living beings here, are said to be full of, and this is interesting, full of eyes around and in front and behind, all around and within. What this means is that this holy magnitude of God captures their attention all around them. They cannot look away from God's holiness, nor would they ever want to look away from his holiness. Now, as it regards their creaturely elements concerning the lion, the ox, the eagle, and even the man-like imagery, as you can probably imagine, again, scholars are not in perfect unison over these things, and I imagine many of you have probably heard different interpretations over these same things as well. Many people have suggested in the past that they signify the whole of God's created order of beings, namely the untamed creatures like the lion, the tamed creatures like the ox, mankind as a whole, humanity, and even the birds of flight. So it represents all of creation, right? All beings that God has created here on this earth. Others believe that the fourfold nature of these winged beings, since it mentions their wings, refers to the four directional winds, or the four geographic corners of the earth, if you will. But whatever the case, I believe we do well to understand them as being first angelic beings in tandem with the other prophetic texts that we have throughout Scripture, describing these same four beings. We see elsewhere these same four beings in two places especially. We won't go into it this morning for the sake of time, but we can find these in both Isaiah 6 and also in Ezekiel 1. And if you'd like to read those passages later, I'd encourage you to do so, because you'll see an exact symmetry with this passage in both of those. And second, I believe that for the, their purpose before the throne of God, it, it is set as a, really a declaration of the praise that again encircles him day and night. So beyond what they represent ultimately, they really represent this praise that continuously surrounds God and his throne. After all, their presence around the throne serves to show us now for a third time in verse 6 and even a fourth time in verse 8 that their existence, their absolute existence, is to direct the worship of the surrounding creation to the eternal king in the center. And so as such, we see their circular, continuous song heard resounding in this Trishagion of verse 8, in which it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Here we see purity, power, and eternality all ascribed to our God by these four living beings in repetitions of three threefold statements. Holy, 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 as an attribution of God's complete transcendence, otherness, and purity. Lord God Almighty as a threefold statement often used of so-called God kings in that time when this was written, but truly only properly attributed to God, the Lord God himself. And finally, that statement of who was and is and is to come. The proclamation of his eternal kingly reign, which far supersedes any temporal reign of any earthly king or ruler. Echoing this response, the 24 elders, as we see here in verses 9 through 11, bow down to this king who lives forever and ever. As these 24 elders cast their crowns before the glassy sea before the King of Kings. And here we see them declaring creation's anthem now in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, meaning his desire, they existed and were created. See, the repetition of kingly motifs, of crowns, of thrones, of precious gems, and of absolute God-King status and sovereign rule and reign over all. All of these things are on full display for us at this point in our text, are they not? But as we begin to zoom out from this scene, take a step back, so to speak, from this picture of heaven, it's no accident that what we begin to see is the most curious of all images. See around the one true and most holy God, we see the worshipers in effect crowning him, composing one giant circular crown around the king of all kings, crowning him for all eternity with their utter praise and even their very existence. This crown, though bristling with figurative diadems and precious jewels and thrones and angels and creatures, all together make up the most beautiful crown that God has invented for himself. That includes people like you and me, does it not? See, as we read Revelation, it is so easy for us to become enamored with our finite understanding of things, longing to spend even countless hours poring over what exactly these 24 elders mean and what these diadems mean and what are these Colors mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we end up oftentimes losing sight of the actual underlying message here in Revelation. The underlying message that God has given to us. See, truly, the message of Revelation 4 is quite simple. Is this that God is sovereign in His kingship over all things and people and events and places and times. And yet, by his good pleasure, as we read of in verse 11, by his good pleasure, he has chosen to make his creation be, in effect, a crown of joy for himself. He delights in his creation, friend. See, as Revelation 4.11 again tells us, by his will, his wanting to, his desire, all things existed and were created. See, amidst all the imagery of praise, literally encircling the throne, amidst the pictures of jewels and rainbows and a multitude of lesser crowns and lesser thrones, the image of a singular unified crown encircling the king of kings is on full display for us this morning. You may be thinking in your own soul, as am I, but who am I to ever, ever, Compose, along with creation, so rich a crown for the King of Kings. How could I ever stand before the throne of such a holy and perfect God and dare to even remain standing before him? Friend, you and I, we know our sins intimately. And we are so acquainted with the effect of sin, not just upon our own lives, but the sin of our culture even around us. Sins that abound around us. Sins that I literally walked by even this morning on the way over here. It's so blatantly in front of us every day. So who are we, as sinners even, to ever serve as those who bring honor and praise to this holy God? Who are we? And how are we to praise him? Well, friend, our only response is to submit wholeheartedly to the kingship and lordship of such a holy God. We are called to confess Christ as Lord over every part of our lives, over everything that so easily entangles us. And it's in this same posture of humility and confession before this holy God that we can then readily receive the good news of divine grace spoken over us. See, the very one who sits on high, the very Lamb of God that we'll read of later on in Revelation 5, is the same one who in the fullness of time came forth for us, to rescue us, to redeem us. And he did so in order to rescue us from our own sin, and our misery, and to save us indeed to the uttermost. Friend, it is through the atoning death of Christ Jesus our Lord and his bodily resurrection from the grave that he has secured for us life eternal. And this life eternal will exist one day at the last before this same Father of lights that we have been reading of with unbroken, undisjointed fellowship with him. On that final day, We, only by Christ's saving power, will be able to actually cast our own crowns before the same holy and righteous God. Friend, this affects how we live our lives, does it not? How we worship, how we worship with awe and honor before the King. But in closing, I have one final word for you that as we desire to be a people who Properly and even more properly day by day by day worship our God with absolute awe and wonder this holy God How will we then be a church plant here in downtown Lynchburg? In the midst of change in the midst of a lot of it changes to say the least In the midst of stressors and the unknown variables and factors things that have been on all of our minds the last few months How will we then be a people? That exalts the name of God? Again, when we seek to live in a posture of awe and honor before God, with Christ the King before us, led by the Holy Spirit's power, it is only through that that we will then be able to properly worship and glorify God in this place. And so that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would not be a people who bows the knee to anything lesser than this God that we see here in Revelation rather that we would submit to him, and that our worship will be one of awe and reverence before him. May this be true of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the fact that you have called us to be holy as you are holy. We thank you, O Father, so much that though we know our own brokenness, our own sin, our own failings, our own shortcomings, you nevertheless have made the way through Christ, the only way. We thank you, O Lord, that you have redeemed us from the curse of sin, which is death, and we thank you that you have brought us into the fullness of your life. We are those who have tasted and seen and known that you are good. And we desire here at New Hope for years to come to be a people who would declare your glorious grace here in downtown Lynchburg. We ask, oh God, that you would use our brokenness, that you would use the limps upon which we walk to yet bring forth your praise. And we ask, oh God, for your healing hand as well to be upon us, to restore us, for the enemy has caused any kind of, of temptation or, or sinfulness or separation due to sin, that you would quell these things as you do that sea before you. And Lord, we ask that you would bring that peace to our own hearts, that we might be a people of peace people called by your name, people called to worship you in spirit and in truth. For Lord, you are truly holy and more than deserving of all of our praise for all of eternity. So we pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, our Lord.